0: Uh, Hey, it's good to be with you here this morning. Uh, My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, just grateful to be able to gather together as the church this morning. Uh, Before we get into the word, let's just uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're uh, just thankful that we get to be together once again as your church, and Lord, just to be able to spend time singing songs uh, that are about you, that are to you, that uh, rehearse the reality, the gospel in our life that we did not find you, we didn't seek you out, Lord, but that you came to us to rescue us. And so Lord, I pray that we would never forget that, that would never become old news to us, but every time we hear it, every time we sing it, and we need to be reminded of it over and over again, that it would be refreshing to our souls. And so Lord, now as we open up your word, I pray that you would help us just to, to rest in the truth of your word and to be encouraged and challenged this morning by it. And Lord, we want you to be honored. We want you to be praised. We want you to be made much of this morning. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do that work through the power of your spirit in our life as we sit under your word now. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. We're going to be in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 34 this morning, so if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll have some guys uh, bring a Bible around to you just so that you can read uh, along uh, in the scriptures this morning. It's okay if you don't have one. We want you to be able to, to read, so just keep your hand up till they find you. And if you don't actually own a Bible, we'd love to give that to you as a gift uh, just so that you can uh, read God's Word uh, throughout the week. So just keep your hand up till they find you so that you can have that. A friend of mine this week posted uh, something on Facebook about this crazy race that's going on down in the Outer Banks this March. It's called the Graveyard 100. The Graveyard 100, what this race is, is a 100-mile ultramarathon. Not 100K, 100-mile ultramarathon. Runners start in Kerala, run all the way to Hatteras, and they have to complete it in 30 hours. 30 hours have to run 100 miles all the way down. Now, first off, that's just straight up crazy. I mean, who does stuff like that? My family and I, this summer, were down in the Outer Banks. We went all the way down to Hatteras. And I remember pulling up. If you've been to Outer Banks before, you kind of cross over. You make that right turn. And you're like, we're here in Nags Head. And then you got to go all the way to Hatteras. And it felt like forever. And we were in a car, not running. I can't imagine what it would be like to start even further north and run all the way down the length of the Outer Banks. I was reading the notes from a participant in uh, this race who ran this race last year. He's going to do it again this year. And he was just sharing some different things, things he'd learned, things that had worked, things that hadn't worked. He talked about hydration and exercise and even the kind of clothing that he wore and sun protection as he's out in the elements for that long. But the thing that struck me most about what he said was, uh, was the mental aspect of the race. He noted that he had come up with mental tricks to keep pressing on. As he's running this race, he would focus on some kind of landmark, something he could see up ahead, and just try to run to that. Sometimes he said there wasn't really any landmarks around, so he'd try to find a piece of trash, anything he could look forward to to say, I'm going to run to that. I'm going to run to that. He said at some points in the most desolate parts of this race, and there's some desolate places along that route. He, there was nothing to look at. It was just sand dune after sand dune after sand dune. And so he would literally just put his head down and keep moving forward, trying to get further along in this race. I can imagine at different points on a hundred-mile journey, as you're striving to finish the race, the thought crosses your mind, maybe at some point in the middle of that, trying to remember why you started it in the first place. Why did I decide to do this? Well, today we're wrapping up our series called Torah we began this series back in April or the, uh, the end of March, beginning of April last year. And it's been our, our longest preaching series that we've done since this church started almost two and a half years ago. As we wrap up today in Deuteronomy chapter 34, which is the last chapter uh, of the last book of the Torah, the Torah being the first five books of the Bible, I want us to remember why we started this journey in the first place. What the purpose of all of this has been? Why did we decide to spend this much time going through these five books of the Bible? And I hope our time today in God's Word will not just serve as a reminder to us, but will also encourage us, both as individuals and as a church family, as we continue to press forward in our own lives. So go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34, and we'll read that together. Deuteronomy chapter 34, it's 12 verses long, that's a pretty short chapter, and so we're just going to read the whole thing. Deuteronomy chapter 34 says this, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea the Negev, and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, "'This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. "'I will give it to your offspring. "'I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there.' "'So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. "'And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor,' But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and from all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel most of Deuteronomy has been from the perspective of Moses. Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, is essentially preaching a bunch of sermons to the people of Israel as they get ready to go into this promised land, reminding them that it's for their joy, it's for their good to live under the lordship of God, that, that God is good, that he is a good God, a good king, and that they should follow him and be obedient to what he's called them to do. Moses has been the primary speaker in this. But in this text, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, we find Moses is not the speaker. A narrator is the speaker. And what he's narrating for us is the death of Moses. Chapter 34 is essentially an epilogue on the book of Deuteronomy and the Torah. The age of Moses is coming to an end. In verses three, I mean, excuse me, 1 through 4, we see that Moses is heading up to Mount Nebo. He knows that he is going up, but that he will not be coming back down. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, God told Moses that this would be the place and the time that Moses would die. And so when it was time to go up, Moses knew this was it. This is my time to die Now, Mount Nebo gives Moses an uninhibited view of the land that God had promised to give his people. It it sits on one side of the Jordan River, on the east side of the Jordan River, and looks over uh, the Jordan River into this promised land. And there's the city of Jericho, which is sitting right there on the edge. This is the place the people are going to go into the promised land. And so from this view, from Mount Nebo, he has an uninhibited view of the promised land. Verse 1 says that the Lord showed Moses all of the land. Now, I grew up in this area. I grew up in the D.C. area and uh, kind of Herndon, Chantilly area. And so a lot of times when we had relatives come to town, what do you do when your relatives come to town? You take them down to D.C. Uh, that got kind of old for me because it's right down the street for me. But my family from out of town always wanted to go down there, see the museums and the, the White House and the Capitol and all those different things. When I was a kid, uh, we would go up in the Washington Monument. It's probably been since I was a kid that I've done that. But we, we would go up into the Washington Monument. And I can remember going up in this huge structure that has four sides that you can look out of. And as you look out this window, you have an uninhibited view. There's not a lot of skyscrapers in D.C. They're not allowed to be there. And so you can see really far from the top of the Washington Monument. You can see uh, all around the district. You can see into Maryland. You can see into Virginia just from this one place in the district. Now, the description of what Moses is able to see, though, is not just that he has really good eyesight. It's basically impossible for him to see everything that says that he can see when God shows him all the land. God is essentially giving Moses a supernatural view to see all the borders of the promised land. He wants to, he wants to show Moses all that he said he's promised to give his people, and so he allows Moses supernaturally to see clearly, more clearly than would normally be be possible. He reminds Moses in the beginning of verse 4, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is the land that I said I would give to their offspring. What he's doing here is he's reminding Moses that he has been faithful, that he is faithful to his plans and to his people. That's a theme we've seen over and over and over again as we've walked through these first five books of the Bible. But as he is faithful to his plans and his people, he's also reminding Moses and showing Moses that he is faithful to his word. At the end of verse 4, he says to Moses, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. God is reminding Moses, telling him once again, you are still receiving the discipline that I said you would receive because of your disobedience. Now, we looked at this back in Numbers chapter 27. We, we talked about what happened with Moses. We talked about the seriousness of shepherding and the fact that God holds his leaders to a higher standard. Moses acted out in anger towards Israel at that time, and in doing so, he disobeyed God's command to him. He disobeyed God's word. And, and Moses' discipline is severe. It is strong. It is strong. He's been leading these people for so long, yet because of that act of disobedience, of disobeying God's word, God says the consequence for that in this life is that you, you are now not going to be able to go into the promised land. So this point, as Moses is standing on the, the, the mountain looking over into the promised land, I'm sure it would be a, a time of mixed emotions for him, a kind of a, a bittersweet time for him. He's getting to see and hear again from God that God will bring this people into the land. He's excited. He's full of faith for what that means for God's people. We've been journeying for so long. This promise was made so many hundred years before, and it's about to become reality. There's excitement with that. But at the same time, I'm sure there's a bit of sadness for Moses because he knows he doesn't get to enter into this place with these people that he's been leading. These people he's been interceding on behalf of for so long. Then we get to verses five and six, and I love that verses five and six are pretty matter-of-fact. Moses dies. Moses dies. Moses dies in the land of Moab. He doesn't die in a homeland. He dies in a foreign land, just like Abraham. And he dies according to the word of the Lord, because God, the author of life, said it would be so. But notice what happens in verse six. What happens in verse 6 is is that, that it's God who buries Moses in a secret burial place. God disciplines Moses. He has to die before going into the promised land because of his disobedience. But God in this moment shows tender care and respect for Moses who's called his servant by taking care of his body personally and personally burying him. Then the author kind of shifts gears a bit. He's talked about the death of Moses, and that Moses is seeing all these things, but at this point, Moses is dead, and so he shifts in this epilogue to a bit of commentary. He gives a, essentially a eulogy for Moses. It's similar to something we would read in the newspaper, in the obituary section, if someone's passed away, as we talk about who this person was. And he does this in verse 7, and then in verses 10 through 12. So let's read those together again. Verse 7 says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. You can imagine opening up the newspaper and reading about this. He was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And jumping down to verses 10 through 12, it says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. To Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This isn't some nice biblical editorial PR. Moses' shortcomings have been chronicled all throughout this series as we've looked throughout. As as Moses made his introduction in the book of Exodus, we've seen that Moses is not a perfect person. But this is God's word, and God's word speaks highly of Moses, this imperfect man used by an absolutely perfect God. Even at 120 years old, the fire in his eyes and his heart never diminished. That's a blessing from the Lord as he led God's people. He was the prophet of all prophets. He spoke the words of the Lord to the people of God. Moses was a messenger. He was an exhorter. He was an encourager. He was a wisdom giver. He played the role of a mediator between God and the people and the people and God over and over and over again. And notice what it says in verse 10. It doesn't say that he knew the Lord, that he knew Yahweh face to face, but that the Lord knew him face to face. Let us not forget that God sought Moses out. God sought him out to have a special relationship with him unlike any other person. Moses didn't find God. Moses didn't figure God out. Moses didn't convince God to choose him to lead his people. He didn't submit his resume, his leadership credentials to say, I would be a good candidate for this. If we remember back to uh, Exodus chapter three, Moses was trying to convince God that he wasn't the right person to do this. But God sought Moses out. God came after him and God brought Moses into a close personal relationship with him to then use him to set his people free. That is God's grace in Moses's life. This is a fitting eulogy for a man who played such a significant role in the history of God's people. So as expected, if we go back to verse 8, we see that the people of Israel mourn Moses for 30 days with weeping. Weeping and mourning. Their faithful leader was dead. But I love how matter-of-fact it says that they mourned for 30 days, but then the time of mourning came to an end. It's over. He's done. Because now Joshua is the leader. Joshua now is going to lead God's people, and the people obey him just as they obeyed Moses. Moses is gone. His story is done. But the story of God's people continues on. They're heading into the promised land, led not by the man who led them out of slavery in Egypt, not by the man who led them through the Red Sea, not by the man who led them through the desert for 40 years as they rebelled all along the way, but by his successor, Joshua, whose name means Yahweh is salvation. Now this seems like a strange ending in Moses' life. And it may seem kind of like a weird text to pick. I mean, we haven't preached through every chapter of these five books of the Bible, so we could have picked something different to end this series on. So it may seem like an end, a weird text to, to end this series on, but I actually think it's a, a perfect text to focus on because this text does what we sought out to do since the beginning of this series back in March. We go all the way back to March last year, Alan began this series preaching out of John chapter 5 to show us that the Bible is all about Jesus. In John chapter 5, Jesus says two key things that I want to remind us of this morning. John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, Jesus says this, he's speaking to Pharisees, people who would have known the, the Old Testament, who would have known these first, fa- first five books of the Bible very, very well, perhaps even, probably even had them memorized. He says this to them, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. A few verses later, Jesus says this, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? We could go to Luke 24. An interaction where the risen Jesus is meeting a group of disciples who are traveling on a road. And he says this to them. He says, or he gives a description of what he does with them. Luke 24 verse 27 says, And beginning with Moses, beginning with the Torah, these first five books of the Bible and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Sojourn, the reason we did this series, the reason we began this long journey that could really be even longer if we wanted it to be, is because we wanted to teach all of us, we wanted to remind all of us to help all of us see that all of Scripture is all about Jesus. It's not just so we understand these Old Testament stories that we maybe remember as a kid, we want to make sure that we understand that those stories in light of all of Scripture are about Jesus. Jesus. And as we end the book of Deuteronomy and end this series, we see that even the last chapter of the Torah, the last chapter of Deuteronomy, shows us once again that it really is all about Jesus. Now, we just went through the text of Deuteronomy 34, and you may say, well, how? How is this epilogue recording the death of Moses all about Jesus? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Let me try and show you briefly and then tell you why this matters for you and for me right now Moses is disciplined for his rebellion against God he was not permitted to enter into the promised land and we can look at that and think that that is harsh punishment to Moses but we can't just read that and miss the whole context of what's going on because we have to see that in the midst of this discipline that God continues to show great grace to Moses I mean think about this Moses is not allowed to go into the promised land. He's not allowed to physically cross over the Jordan River with God's people because of his sin. But he dies. What happens when he dies? He's welcomed into the very presence of holy God. That is infinitely better than spending the rest of his years in this promised land. That's God's grace to him. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible for Moses, who's being disciplined because of his sin, be allowed to now stand in God's presence? It's only possible because of grace. See, Moses' sin must be dealt with. He he cannot be eternally in God's presence if his sin still remains. God is holy. Moses is not. Just like you. Just like me. But Romans chapter 3 tells us how this is possible. Listen to Paul's words. I want to read these six verses, and I just want you to hear what the Apostle Paul is saying. I'm going to point out a few things in this. The Apostle Paul writes this, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Then he says this, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Everything we've just been talking about Outlining the law of God, it, it, it gives testimony, it gives witness to the righteousness of God. And it says this, The righteousness of God has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a, a satisfying sacrifice for our sin by his blood to be received by faith. Not by works, not by doing something, not by bringing our obedience to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness and then check this out because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. He had passed over former sins. Moses can't see Jesus, but he knows he needs Jesus. Passed over former sins. And the last verse says it was to show, the reason that God did this was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus The grace that is greater than all of Moses' sin comes in and through Jesus. It has to. There is no other way for anyone who's ever existed to be reconciled to God for their sin to be forgiven except Christ. If there's another alternative, then there's another gospel. It has to be in Jesus. Romans 3 tells us, though, that Moses was looking forward to the day that Jesus would bear the weight of his sin on the cross as much as we look back and are thankful for it. Jesus and the cross, what he does there is the pinnacle of God's redeeming grace in all of history. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses said another great prophet would arise among God's people. The ending of Deuteronomy that we just read then is packed with anticipation because this hasn't happened yet. A prophet like Moses hasn't arisen yet. See, Moses is a great prophet who God knew face to face, who did many signs and wonders, who led God's people, but life is not found in Moses. Moses is a sinner just like the rest of Israel, just like you, just like me. He needs a mediator too. But see, someone great like Moses doesn't arise, someone greater than Moses does. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, tell us, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Moses mediated the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. He is the final prophet and in him is the life and light of men. Moses did many signs and wonders, but Jesus is the one who created the world and holds all things together. He came into the world showing his power over sickness, disease, sin, and death. And because of that, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 3 says that he was counted more worthy of more glory than Moses. See, Moses' hope was in a redeemer, not himself. He was a mediator for God's people, but he was not the mediator for God's people. Moses pointed God's people, himself included, and you and me to our only hope, Jesus. The prophet, Jesus the priest, Jesus the king who would speak the words of life to us, who would offer up his life on the cross to bear the punishment for our sin and then rise again to rule and reign forever. He is the Redeemer who was promised from the beginning who would crush Satan, sin, and death for all who believe, including Moses. So we know that Moses did believe. We know that Moses' sin was paid for on the cross ultimately. We know that Moses received God's grace in and through Christ because in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain. And on this mountain, Jesus is transfigured, meaning it shows his future glory. They get a glimpse of what the future glory of Christ will be. And when that happens in front of Peter, James, and John, who appears alongside of Jesus, but none other than Moses along with Elijah. See, Moses is getting a front row seat on the top of a mountain again to see the redemption he has trusted in to finally be accomplished at the cross of Christ. Moses was always meant to point to something greater, always meant to point to someone greater. Even in his death, he does that. The Torah spends so much time talking about Moses. Out of five books, four of them, he's a central figure. But the Torah is not a testimony or a memorial to Moses. The Torah is a testimony of God's grace. And if it's a testimony of God's grace, then it's a testimony about Jesus. Because God's grace is found in and through Christ alone. It really is all about Jesus. Now, why, why does this matter for you and for me? I just want to give two reasons as we wrap up our time here of why this matters for you and for me. The first is really practical and I hope helpful to you this morning. When we understand the Bible really is all about Jesus, it helps us to study the Bible correctly. When we really understand, when we understand that the Bible really is all about Jesus, it helps us to study the Bible correctly correctly. At Sojourn, we believe that the Bible, that the scriptures are God's word given to us. And in God's word, we learn about God. We learn about who he is, what he has done, and what he is doing. But we also learn about ourselves, not disconnected from God, but in relation to who God is. And one of the things that's very clear from the beginning of scripture is that we have a problem The totality of who we are, our minds, our hearts, and our bodies are completely tainted by and affected by sin. But holy God, who is just in judging us for our rebellion and sin that exists in our hearts and our lives, provides a remedy to this problem. So the Bible is God's story of redeeming grace. Of God working out his plan of redemption for people from every tribe, every language, and every nation. What this means for you when you read the Bible is that when we look at it, when you read it, when I read it, is that we have to look at it through the lens of God's redeeming grace that comes in and through Christ alone. It all goes together to point us to Jesus. If we just read it and we disconnect it, then we're missing the point of the scriptures. What we've done in this series, what I'm even trying to do now in Deuteronomy 34 is what we should all do as we read and study the Word. I've observed the text seeking to comprehend what's going on here. I'm interpreting the text in light of all of Scripture that we have access to, and then I'm seeking to apply it to your life and to my life. Listen, let me get real practical. If you need help studying the Bible in this way, I want to point you to two things two things. The first thing I want to point you to do, either that you can do this week, is go on our website, go to our blog, and read a post that Ben Hyde made about a week ago. It's called Three Tips for Redemptive Bible Reading. That will serve you well. If you want to understand how to read the Bible in this way, to see the story of grace, go read that blog post. I think it'll help you. But the second thing I want to call you to, if you need help doing this, is to remember that your relationship with Jesus is not just this individual thing. That that it's not just a you and Jesus thing. That Jesus saves you, but then he brings you into a family. He brings you into a community. And so we exist to help one another. Ephesians 4 tells us that we help one another grow to maturity in Christ. So if you need help studying the word, then go to your community. Start with your community group leader and ask him to help you. Ask her to help you. Ask people that you know well, that you see, man, they have a, a fervent relationship with the Lord. They study their word. I want to I go and ask them, please, would you help me? Would you help me to be able to do this? There's nothing wrong with doing that. Lay down any pride you'd have that would keep you from doing that and humility to say, look, I need help. I need help with this. Look, some of us need to slow down when reading the Bible. We think that Bible reading is all about is all about how much, about the, the, the quantity of our reading. Some of us need to slow down a little bit to see the story of grace played out. Some of us maybe need to speed up a little bit. We can get so slowed down reading over something that we forget about the big picture of what's going on. And some of us, some of us just need to open it up, period, and start But let me say this to you, if you open it up, and maybe you've never studied the Bible before, maybe you know that you need to study the Bible, you want to do that, but you've you've just never done it before, don't just open it up to random places every day. I I know what that's like, you're saying, I should read my Bible today, and so you just flip, you're trusting the Spirit, right? You just flip, and you pick something out, Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany, cool story, and then you flip again, and now you're in, you know, Psalm 120, deliver me, O Lord, and you're like, I just don't get it, this seems so boring and disconnected, that's because you're not reading it the right way. Men, open up to somewhere, read through a book of the Bible, read it in light of all the scriptures, take what's preached on Sundays and put all those things together to see God's story of grace that's played out through all the word. If you've never read the Bible before, if you've never studied something before, let me suggest that you start somewhere like the Gospel of John to hear about the life of Jesus. And again, if you need help with that, ask for help. But listen, no matter where you're at when it comes to studying the Bible in this way, the one thing that you and I cannot do as we open up God's word is set Jesus aside when we're reading. Because if we remove the storyline of grace from the stories of the Bible, we reduce it to silly religious fables that have no real power and no real effect in your life. God's story of grace must be what we come back to over and over and over again. But Sojourn, listen, listen, And this is for anyone, whether you are a mature follower of Jesus, whether you've just come to know Jesus for the first time, or you're even skeptical about who Jesus is, listen to me. Life is not found in knowing the Bible. Life is not found in knowing about the Bible. Life is not even found in knowing that the Bible is about Jesus. Life is found in Jesus. It's found in Jesus who the Bible speaks of. It's found in Jesus who the Bible calls us to by faith to believe in and follow as Lord of all of our life. Don't mix those two things up. That leads to our second point of application. When we understand the Bible really is all about Jesus, it compels us to see that all of our lives and legacies should be all about Jesus too. When we understand that the Bible really is all about Jesus, it compels us to see that all of our lives and legacies should be all about Jesus too. Amy and I were married uh, about 11 and a half years ago. And when we got married, we had a song sung in our wedding as a prelude to the service. We had a lot of music in our wedding, and so we wanted to begin by having a friend of ours get up and sing a solo before the whole ceremony began. She sang a song uh, that's called Jesus, Lover of My Soul. It's an old uh, passion song. So if you were like born in the 90s, you may not know that song, um, because I think that's when it was written. But let me just read you some of the words. It says this, it's all about you, Jesus. And all this is for you, for your glory and your fame. It's not about me, as if you should do things my way. You alone are God, and I surrender to your ways. We wanted this to be what was true of our marriage. Before we walked down the aisle, before we said, I do, before we made a covenant commitment to one another, we wanted this to be sung over and remind people that it wasn't about me, it wasn't about her, it's all about Jesus. And as much as we were trying to exalt the Lord, and that is also a challenge to us, a reminder to us that it really is all about Jesus. Now sometimes after that, we would joke around and change the lyrics a little bit when someone was maybe being a little demanding. And instead of saying, it's all about you, Jesus, we would sing, it's all about me. But see, too often I think the reality is is that our altered version of that song is the true theme song of many days of many of our lives. It's all about me. It's all about me. At the beginning I talked about the Graveyard 100, a grueling race that at times can seem like it's never going to end, that the finish line is so far away, maybe not even visible for most of the race. Sometimes the only scenery is more and more sand dunes. And I think for some of us in the day-to-day of life, as we sit in traffic on our way to work once again, as we go to work, as we take care of our kids and clean our homes and go to class, as we pay bills, as we eat, as we sleep, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, repeat, repeat, repeat. The mundaneness of the scenery around us has caused us to forget that we are running a race. The mundaneness of things around us has caused us to forget why we started it in the first place. The mundaneness of things around us has forget, caused us to forget the purpose of it at all. And the ultramarathon runner said, sometimes my mind plays tricks on me and I don't feel like I'm making any progress at all. Do you ever feel like that? Man, I'm just moving, but I don't feel like I'm moving. <laughs> Nothing's changing around me. Everything looks the same. Man, I've had moments like that. I just talked with my guys in my community group a couple of weeks ago and said, guys, I'm, I'm tired My son keeps waking up in the middle of the night. I feel tired. And when I feel tired, I don't want to spend time in God's word. I want to sleep. So I ask, would you pray for me? Would you help me to not allow fatigue to be an excuse not to spend time with my God in his word? I need that. Then I know what it's like to feel like we're never making any progress. But listen, we don't have to look at landmarks or focus on a piece of trash up ahead. And we certainly do not have to put our head down and just press forward with willpower and determination. We can look at the very words of life given to us that tell us about the one who is the light in life of men. The one who saved us. The one who is changing us. The one who will come again to bring us home. When we take up God's word, when we read God's word, not to check a box off not to gain more theological knowledge. When we read God's word to see and savor more of our Savior, we can press forward knowing that God is working in us, knowing that God is working through us as we abide by his word and we abide in the one who his word is all about. It's all about Jesus. That's what gives me hope. That's what gives me endurance. That's what gives me perseverance to press forward, knowing that my God is good and that he is faithful to his plans and his people, even including me. Even including me. As we close, I just want us to listen to the Apostle Paul once again, because Paul understood this journey, this race that we're running. He says this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Paul knew he didn't have anything that he could bring before God. But he says, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Then he says this, that I may know him, know him, not know about him, but know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, knowing Jesus is so much better than anything else this world has to offer to us. But then he says this, and this is our encouragement to us this morning. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Man, we're not perfect. We're still on this journey, just like he was on this journey. And knowing that, he says this, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Jesus came to us to rescue us. It's grace upon grace to us. And then Paul says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Listen, the Bible is not about you, but the Bible is for you. It's not about you, but it is for you. And when we stop reading the Bible as if it's about us, looking for specific directions to every detail of our life, and we start reading it knowing and believing that it's about God's grace, then we find our heart's disposition changing from a focus on ourselves to a focus on our God and Savior. And when we understand that it really is all about Jesus, we are compelled to run the race before us, not for our own glory or fame, not to earn something for God, but for his glory, for his fame, so that we might know him more. We can press forward to the upward call of Christ Jesus because God's word implanted in our hearts and in our minds God by God's spirit compels us to do that. See, the challenge for us this morning is to place ourselves under God's word, not over it. To place ourselves under his word, allowing it to read us, to speak into our lives, not the other way around. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is living and active because the word of God is about Jesus, and Jesus is alive. When we read God's word, it makes plain to us our desperate and constant need for God's redeeming and transforming grace that comes in and through Christ alone. So sojourn, let's be people of the word Because in the word, from beginning to end, we find the one who has the words of life and is speaking to you even now through his word. All of us are on a spiritual journey, according to Matthew chapter 7. All of us are running a race. My question for you this morning is, what is your destination? What is your goal? The world says to make it about you, but let me encourage you this morning to make it about Christ. I was reading Psalm 30 this past week and I I enjoy reading through the Psalms over and over and over again because it's just, there's a lot of emotion and talking about heart and up and down, just the the reality of life. And so I read it through it over and over again. And so I was reading through Psalm 130 this week and something jumped out to me that I hadn't really noticed before in verse seven. Psalm 130 verse seven says, O Israel, O God's people, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. Plentiful redemption. When we understand that all of the Bible really is all about Jesus, we can rest in the reality of verse seven that there is plentiful redemption. So, have you experienced it? All of us have sin, just like Moses, but God's grace is greater than all our sin because Christ went to a cross to bear the punishment for that sin, and His shed blood is sufficient for you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've. Done. So, what is your life about right now? Be honest with yourself. What is your life about right now? If you know that you've been making your life about you instead of Jesus, then repent today and turn in faith to Christ for the first time or the thousandth time because in Him there is plentiful redemption. Maybe you've never trusted in Christ before. Turn to him today in faith, believing he is who he says he is and he's done what he said he came to do because in him there's plentiful redemption. We do not live to make much of ourselves. We live to make much of him. Our legacy should be the same as Moses. Moses didn't live to make much of himself but to to make much of the saving grace of God in our lives. So Sojourn, let's run the race like Paul, counting everything as rubbish in order that we may gain Christ's Christ, because we truly believe that knowing Christ, that having Christ, that being with Christ is better than anything the world offers to us. I want this church, this family, this community to be all about Jesus. And by God's grace, so far in the history of this church, I believe that's been the case, but I don't want that to ever change, because if it changes, we die. Because this is Jesus' church. He died to save us. He rose to give us new life. And now he empowers us to be his messengers of reconciliation to our neighbors and the nations. Sojourn, from beginning to end, the scriptures are clear. It's all about Jesus. So let's believe that today and strive to make our lives all about him too. Every week we come forward as a family of brothers and sisters to take communion. Every week we tear off a piece of bread and we take a small cup to drink, and there's two phrases that are spoken over us Christ's body broken for you, Christ's blood shed for you. I love that we do this every week because it means that we end every sermon being reminded and refreshed that it isn't about trying harder. It isn't about doing better. It isn't about cleaning ourselves up first or getting our lives right on our own. When we eat the bread, when we drink the cup together every week, we are reminded and refreshed in the depths of our heart to know and rest in the reality that it's all about Jesus. So as you come forward this morning, may the words spoken over you be fresh to you today, even if you've heard them a ton of times before. May the burdens you're carrying be lifted. May your gaze be taken off of yourself and your circumstances, no matter what those happen to be this morning, and shifted to the one who is worthy of all your praise, Jesus, our Savior and King. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion, because when we do come forward to take the bread and drink the cup, what we're declaring is it's all about Jesus that we're desperate for Jesus, that grace is found in him alone, that reconciliation and forgiveness before God is found in Jesus alone. And so if you haven't experienced that yet, we don't want you to come forward to take these things. We want you to take Christ today, that you would truly experience God's saving grace. So just hang out in your seat if you don't yet know Jesus and ask God to reveal himself to you. Ask God to save you today. Turn in faith today to believe in Jesus so that you could come forward next week as a new brother, a new sister in Christ, and hear those words spoken over you. So those of you that will come forward, whenever you're ready, you can come. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. We're gonna have two communion stations in the back and two in the front. So if you're sitting towards the back half, uh, feel free to turn around and go back that direction. There'll be some brothers and sisters back there to serve those elements to you, and the rest of you can come to the front. Let's pray. Father, we are just blessed that, God, that you, by your Spirit, led us to spend so much time in these first five books of the Bible. Lord, I, I just thank you that through all of this, that we've been able to walk through at a high level all of these stories, some of them that are probably very familiar to us, but actually seeing how these connect to the larger picture of your story of redeeming grace. So, Lord, I pray that as we now, just in a practical way, read our Bibles, that we would remember that it really is all about Jesus, that we would look to see the story of your storyline of your grace weave throughout all the scriptures, and that would encourage us and refresh our souls as we open up your word. And Father, as we open up your word, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, Lord, I pray that it would compel us to see that our lives also are called to be all about Jesus. But Lord, I pray that as we read your word, that it would compel us in that way, that we wouldn't think that we just have to figure it out on our own, but that our hearts would be so captivated by who you are, what you've done, and what you're doing in our life, your consistent grace and faithfulness to us, that we would see the things of this world for what they're worth, as Paul said, as rubbish and trash, and press on to the upward call of Christ Jesus. Father, help us as a church to encourage one another in this. Lord, I pray that we would always be about Jesus and nothing else. Lord, if we ever stray from that, would you discipline us because of that? Lord, we want to be about Jesus from beginning to end and everything we say and do so that our community would know that the most important thing in our life, the most important thing in all eternity is Christ and him crucified. Lord, we thank you for your saving grace in our life. Now let us go living in the reality of that out to this community so that others might experience it too. We love you. We thank you that you love us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.